Hi, everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you are listening to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, the podcast. I'm the author of the book, Common Sense Pregnancy, which is available wherever you get your books, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target.com, wherever. And it's also available over on my website. If you order it over there, I'll sign it and send it out the door real fast. So what do we talk about here on the pod? We talk about all the issues that come up that relate to our lives and experiences as parents here in the 21st century, raising the next generation, which is no easy feat. We talk about pregnancy and prenatal care and birth, which is what my book's all about and which is based on my good long career as a labor and delivery nurse. Um, people ask me if I loved that job. Yes, I loved the births and the parents and the babies and my colleagues and being there at the start for so many families. Um, what I didn't love was the excessive use of unnecessary medical interventions, the heavy use on focus on computer care and insurance care. You know, the standards of care that penalized women, nurses, and people who knew that what was happening in the labor room wasn't necessarily all about health care. There's a lot to know these days about getting safe prenatal and, you know, labor and birth care. And parents need to be educated and they need to be their own best advocates. That's what the book is about. And that's a lot about what we talk about here on the podcast. So this week... Uh, We are going to talk about something hardly every, no one ever wants to really consider. Why some parents kill their kids. We're going to go talk with journalist and author Nancy Rommelman about her new book, To the Bridge, about a Portland woman who drove her two children, I think they were about ages four and seven, to a Portland bridge and flung them into the Willamette River. The littler one drowned and the older child survived. And Nancy dug deep for years to find out what happened that night, what led up to it, and, you know, kind of come to terms with how something that, you know, how something that tragic can happen. Nancy is also an old friend who I met through, you know, the chain of mother friends who befriend each other as we raise kids of the same age. Then we'll get into all of that in just a moment. Um, <clears throat> before we talk about that, though, I want to ask a question for a listener. And this is a question I haven't gotten before. I think it's pretty clever. Um, my listener emailed, Hi there, I am thinking about having my first child. I would really like to find some like-minded women who are at the same stage. No kids, not pregnant yet, but thinking about the process and looking for a community of women to support each other before, during, and after pregnancy. There are a few pregnancy and mother organizations in my area, but I feel like it's unheard of to have a pre-pregnancy group. I simply want to meet some other women trying to navigate and comprehend this huge change in life before it started to happen. Do you have any suggestions as to where to look for a group like this? Thanks so much for your expertise and a fantastic book and podcast. So I haven't had a question from somebody wanting to create a community, you know, pre-pregnancy, but I think it's brilliant, especially since, you know, I talk so much about how you need to create your tribe of people to be with you, you know, in the postpartum period and beyond. Um, 
So I wrote back to my listener and I said that off the top of my head, I'd guess the best places to find those like-minded pre-pregnant women would be at work or in your family and friend groups, your church, your school, your community groups. But then, you know, the question is, yeah, but how do you actually form a group, right? So my listener and I decided we'd pose the question on the air here and see what listeners have to suggest. Have any of you formed a pre-pregnancy support group? How'd it go? How'd you do it? What did it look like? Email me your answers at gene at genefogner.com and we'll read them on the air. Now, people tell me my name's hard to spell and sometimes my website's hard to find. So here goes, J-E-A-N-N-E-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R. Go find me. Okay, let's take a quick break and then we'll come on back and talk about murder and motherhood with Nancy Rommelman. All right, we're back and we are ready to get Nancy Rommelman on the line. Nancy Rommelman, how are you? Good morning. How are you, Jeannie? I'm doing really good. So, Nancy, I read a little bit of your bio right before we got you on the line today, but I always ask this first question. Who are you and what do you do? I am a journalist and an author, and I write I tend to write long-form stories and now a long-form book uh, about stories that are reported or seen in the public as one way and then always sort of look to me to be another way. And then I got to go looking for why it seems to me that way and kind of unpack it. So there you go. (laughs) And what about when you're not on the job? Who are you and what do you do then? Uh, I am a wife and a mother. Um, I, I really can't do anything but write and bake. I'm a good baker. I like to run and, um, I like to have people to my, my house. I I like, um, kind of being a family gal. Yeah. You're, you're a home entertainer. It's great. Yeah. I love having people in and just standing at the counter and cooking some pasta and having some wine and talking. It's just, I, I love it. We always have, not always, but we often have people over and it, it really works for us. That's your life. It's a cool one. Yeah. So you, like <laughs> you and I met through a mutual friend many years yep. ago when you first moved to Portland from Los Angeles with your daughter. And that friend, right. excuse me, I'm a little bit hoarse this morning. <clears throat> that friend was one of the first women that I became real friends with. You know, it was back when we were both brand new moms to two babies a year apart. And I swear we recognized right. each other across the sandbox at uh, at the park, you know, as members of the same tribe, kind of survivors in this. And right. you and our friend met, wasn't it when, in school when your daughters were in school at about the same time or your kids were in school about the same time? Yes, actually our, um, so um, Tamara's second child and, and my daughter Tava were in the same kindergarten class together. And it was a little tiny school in Los Angeles that had been started <laughs> by the wife of the actor Ned Beatty. Now, it was started about six years before we got there, but it was truly kind of a kooky, little, tiny private school in this giant church on Hollywood and Highland. And to send your kid there was a little bit, I, I, it wasn't like one of the places like, well, I definitely want to get my kid in this school. But for certain people, it was like, oh, no, this is rad. Yeah. And uh, Tamara was one of those people. And I completely I responded to this school. So we had our kids in this. It was kindergarten through sixth, 120 kids total. Yeah. So you knew everybody in that school. Yeah. And it was, it was wonderful. 
really wonderful. I, I'm so, Tavi and I still talk so fondly about the Oaks. It was a wonderful experience. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I, I lived in Hollywood myself. All, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles. And it's funny how you find these little tiny provincial pockets that are just, mm-hmm. you know, Highland and Hollywood, for listeners who don't know where that is, is the heartbeat yeah. of Hollywood, California. <laughs> it's right. the heartbeat. And then there's this little, I don't know, quirky, creative hippie it, it, school right there. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I will say, you know, since then, I mean, I think my daughter, how old she would have been like, I don't know, 1994 or something when she mm-hmm. started, mm-hmm. you know, it has since become sort of, you know, it's competitive and people want, it's very expensive now, but we were just so fortunate to be there at a time when it was, it was nascent and it was just wonderful. Yeah. I'm just yeah. so thrilled to have been there. So all those years later, you moved to Portland, yeah. and your daughter is the same age as my second daughter. So that yep. friend connected us. And, you know, that's how it is for so many mother friends. You know, we we form our tribe. We invite others into it. We share our resources to do this work of raising children. And, you know, I bet that that's happened to you time and time and time again. Well, you were like my complete lifeline. I remember we actually came in and hung out with you, Tavi and I did, and with Camille, before we'd even moved here, because it was like, I don't know anyone. And you were like, come on in. And we hung out at your house. And I knew there was someone that I knew here. It was yeah. like my first anchor. Yeah. And um, that was just great. And thank you for that. Um, <laughs> my pleasure. And, and then over the years, you did things like, I remember when my son was absolutely in love with the pound cake that you made and you came over oh, and taught him it. how to make it. It was so sweet. We did. Yeah. And then we had another little friend with him, this little like tiny, tiny kid. Yeah. And we all just made cakes together. Yeah. I was like, yeah, we're not. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we um, do. Yeah. You know, <laughs> It's funny because you do do that when your kids are little. You you migrate to people that you feel like we can do this thing together. Now we have grown kids now, yeah. So how do we you know how do we replace that now, right? You know, right. either just friends you connect in other ways. For me, very often it's work. You know, you you it's another journalist. I was out last night till God practically five in the morning with some journalists just talking, you know, it's like we share these things and this is how we connect now. But when you're little, when your kids are little, I mean, it's, it's, it's mandatory. You need to have that. It's Um, survival. It was sure was for me, especially with that, our friend that we were just talking about because um, she was part of my sleep system. There were years there where our kids were in um, this you know, funky little co-op preschool in Hollywood together. And it was, it was a co-op. So we all had to volunteer there, but it was only for a couple of hours. I was a night shift nurse. I was working, you know, 7P to 7A. And then I'd come home and I'd get the girls ready for preschool and I'd take them to preschool and they'd be there with, you know, Tamara or Judy or whoever was the mom I knew there. They'd have their preschool day. And then very often Tamara would take the kids back to her place for the afternoon so that I could sleep from nine to three. Uh, And then I'd come to her house afterwards, pick up the girls. She'd give me some coffee and then I'd go back to the hospital. It was just survival, literally. But it's, it's also this weird normality at that point. I had a friend, we lived in Hollywood. We had little girls born, you know, within the same month. 
And I was working. She was basically home sewing. She was a designer and a seamstress. But I had to do things. I had to go on stories or whatever I was doing. And I mean, she just, I was a drop top off there. Mm-hmm. It was not even, yeah, obviously no money changed hands. It's just what you do. And right. even though she lives in Vancouver, Canada now, she still is so close to my heart. Yeah. It will never leave yeah. because of the things that you, you did for each other in a way that just was so, just so open and lovely and these beautiful little children. It was, yeah, it's great. It's yeah, great. yeah. Well, you know, here we are, you and I both have older children now, but I'm at this position where um, my youngest is going off to college. And so I I haven't lived in the world without having my day-to-day life being wrapped around children's rhythms for 30 years. And so now I'm finding myself in this position of going, how do you do this? How do you, how do you do it? And so I'm reaching out to my, you know, mother friends now, the ones whose children have already gone out in the world and they've, they've figured out how they live their life without being a day-to-day mom and um, finding out how. So expect a call, Nancy, expect a call. Sure. Um, (laughs) Bring the Kleenex, please. (laughs) My daughter is 28 and um, she moved to New York uh, where I was raised and where I'm speaking to you right now from. Um, And she was 20 and I, you know, obviously raised her. I was so beside myself. Um, My husband would find me in weird parts of the house, just sort of collapsed and crying. And at one point he, we were sitting in her room and he's like kind of looking around, you know, it's her room, her bed, her stuff is there. And he's like, you know, maybe what we can do is we can, you know, maybe turn this into a different room and, exercise room or something and I lost my mind. Yes. I was like you can't take her out of here. I can tell you that lasts for about eight months. Ugh. And then you get into the rhythm and I'm and I'm not trying to segue to talk about the book, but I will tell you that the, the book that I've just written and we're gonna talk a little about, the crime happened on May twenty third, two thousand nine. Pablo moved out June 1st, 2009, and it occurred to me about a year ago that part of the reason why I may have committed so strongly to writing this book about children in peril is that I wanted other children to take care of Yeah, and because my child was gone. And you were so, in a state of grief. You were in a state of grief. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was. And And here were these two children that had really been you know, not done right by their mother and their parents, essentially. And I could kind of get on the case and try to figure out why. Um, It it might have occurred to someone else sooner, uh, but it took me about eight years just to to see that that could have been a corollary to my committing to this project. So, Well, I want to talk about the new book, To the Bridge, in just a second. But I did have another kind of transitional question I wanted to ask you. You and I both moved out of L.A. into Portland um, in large part because it was a better place to raise our kids, you know, in our minds, though I hear people saying that they're raising their kids in LA because it's the better place, you know, you never know, but we made, we made this transition because we wanted a better place to raise our kids and Portland was it. Um, you know, mine were real little and just starting the school system and yours was a teenager and entering high school. Right. And I'm wondering what motivated you, you know, it's a huge thing to uproot your children and uproot your life, especially when you know no one, but we do it as mothers. 
or as parents, because we know this is the better thing for our kid. And I wanted to, I kind of want to know what motivated you to want to do that. Well, it was my <clears throat> husband. So uh, I met my husband when my daughter was seven and he moved to LA to be with my daughter and me. And we lived there for six years and he really didn't like Los Angeles. He just did everything about LA from, you know, the traffic to the sort of, you know, plastic surgery to the sort of attitude of the certain LA attitude. I don't need to go into it. Um, he really rubbed him the wrong way. He had grown up in Portland. We wanted to buy a house. And he said to me, these are his exact words. Um, Portland is not the horrible, depressing place it was when I grew up there. He was born in 1967. <laughs> what so a sell. <laughs> I said, well, right. So he brings me to Portland in May, which is, I, I, I dubbed it planet of the plants. Okay. You, every street is in full bloom. There are like fruits offering themselves to you. His mother had been sending what I called the, the PPP packets, the Portland propaganda package. You know, here's the opera, here's the museum. And we bought a house. Like, we just bought a house. But, but I had a daughter who was turning 14, and her father was in L.A. My work was in L.A. Her friends were in L.A. It was a bit, it was a little traumatic for her, um, but we did our best, and she, she was not thrilled at first. But I will tell you, and she'll back me up on this, she has told me, uh, and my husband Dan, at least five or six times, thank you so much for bringing me to Portland and raising me here. Because the thing about Portland that's really cool that you didn't have in L.A., because I had her in the private school system, and, and you know what that is. So mm -hmm. it's like a lot of rich kids and this and that, and, you know. It's a lot of money. It's doing terrible, too yeah. much money. I mean, <clears throat> I don't even want to go into the horrible things that were happening at her, her school where she was in eighth grade. Um, Portland allowed her to sort of create and punk rock her own life. Like mm -hmm. if you wanted to put on a fashion show and you, I think you were there, um, when she was in 10th grade, like, you didn't, like you weren't like Rob Reiner and you called the studio and said, Hey, let's get the kids a place to put on their show. They just figured out some crazy place. Yeah. Our daughters did it together. Inside. Remember the skate and park? It. It yes. Was, yeah. They did it themselves. It was yeah. awesome. And I was like, Okay. These kids have the room to play and to run and to think and to create. And she loved it and she did it. And I was like, that is much better to give them just a, you know, a pretty safe, a pretty cool, a pretty place where you can make your own identity. Now, of course, you know, as soon as she turned 20, she moved to New York where I was raised and she's doing great stuff here. But I think part of why she's able to do it here is because she had to do it herself in Portland. Yeah. Like, Nobody came and said, okay, here's your beautiful new fancy life that you're walking into. It's like, no, yeah. you do it yourself. Yeah. And, and Portland was great for that. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Portland, Portland's great for scrappy kids, scrappy, creative kids. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. <clears throat> Definitely. Yeah. So it's been great for our kids. I, and it's, mm -hmm. but it's the scene for your book to the bridge where Amanda Stoddard tossed her yes. kids off the Ross Island bridge. And for listeners, no, um, sorry, Selwood Bridge. Selwood Bridge. The Selwood Bridge. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so for listeners who aren't yet familiar with this event, can you give us the, you know, the capsule story? I will. So Amanda Scott Smith, 31 years old, um, on May 23rd, 2009, at around 119 in the morning, she drove to the Selwood Bridge, parked her car, took her two children, two of her children, her two youngest children, out of the car. Eldon was age four. Trinity was seven and dropped them off the bridge. It's a, they fell about 90 feet um, and landed in, you know, 56 degree water in a moving river. Eldon drowned 
very quickly. Um, Trinity, on the other hand, screamed and screamed and screamed for help for 40 minutes. And we know this because we have the 911 records and two Good Samaritans living on a floating home heard her, motored their boat onto the river at two o'clock morning and found her. Uh, and they found Eldon nearby and, and he had drowned. Um, Amanda was caught at 1030 that morning in a parking garage uh, in downtown on the ninth floor and arrested and eventually sentenced about 11 months later to 35 years um, in prison before the possibility of parole. Uh, I entered the story the day after it happened when I saw her mugshot on the cover of the Oregonian. And it's, you know, she's a kind of looking a little disheveled, but an attractive white woman. She actually turned out to be part Filipino. But like, I just said to myself, like, how does this happen? It just yeah. didn't make any sense. Yeah. And the stories, you I mean, you and your listeners do not need to guess at what the stories are. The New York story, which is completely understandable, but the conclusions we come to very quickly are evil, crazy, or no one will ever understand how this happened. And for me, none of those answered the question, which is, how did this happen? Um, when Amanda was sentenced in uh, April of 2010, the judge sentencing judge said, you know, no one will ever understand how this happened. And Amanda's estranged husband said the same thing. And my first thought was, yes, we will. We will understand this, how this happened because nothing comes out of the blue. And that was sort of the task I set up for myself. And it took a while because you're asking people about very, very difficult things, but people do need to tell their story. And eventually most people did talk to me and I was able to put it together. And I think um, the reader will read the book uh, and come away with an understanding of how this does happen. I've read, <clears throat> I've read your work for a long, long time, and I've always found it really remarkable how close to the bone you can get on on some of the grittier factors of life. It's you're really you're very good at it. I think of Margaret Atwood sometimes when I read your work because she has that capability oh, too. You. And thank you. yeah, it's pretty it you know, I have a million questions. The the one that I want to ask you first is probably not all that obvious. How do you sit with these feelings and write them out? How do you stay with it for as long as it takes to write a book? It's interesting because I sent a, an advanced copy of the book to my best friend in New York, and you know she hadn't read anything of my work on this particular project. And she texted me, and she's like, Nancy, how did you sit with this for seven years? And I told her, I said, it was my job. Like, I, I set this out for myself. So yeah. what, are you going to fall down on the job? You're not going <clears> to <throat> fall down on the job. Does that mean there weren't times when it was emotional or frustrating or angering? No, of course not. But you've set yourself out a task and you're going to complete it. And I think, especially for a story like this, I mean, we're talking about children in grave peril and murdered, one murdered by their mother. Like, I can't fall down on the job. So you have to, you have to approach it with a certain measure of calm. Um, and, you know, as a journalist, you're amassing a lot of facts and you're doing a lot of interviews and you're getting public records. So, you know, that kind of stabilizes you. You're not just sitting in a room and crying. Yeah. Yes. There was, there was time, but you were just, you're doing your job. Um, you and, know, you, and you're it, able I know to set it down. Used, usually. Um, I've only one time, I've been a journalist for 23 years, and I do tend to, though, I'm not sure why I do tend to gravitate towards stories that are difficult. Um, 
I've only one time gone underwater, and I know this is a terrible uh, kind of metaphor because we're talking about a child who drowned. Um, and there was a years ago with a with a girl who'd been given a mismatched um, heart lung transplant at Duke University, uh, and she died, and it became a national story. And I did lose myself then, and it was very. It's actually one of the reasons that got us to Portland. I, my husband was very concerned for me. I was not myself for like six months. And that was, that was not a good thing. I'm not going to be useful to anybody if I get that emotionally taken away by a story. So I kind of pledged not to do that again. That so, was your training yeah, ground. I got to be able to do my job. <clears throat> that, was your tra- that was your training ground for being able to write this book. Well, you know, it's weird. At this point, I have written about a lot of kids that have been imperiled, um, either by their parents or other circumstances. And I, you know, it's, it's, it's not that I go seeking them out. I'm not like, hey, what story can I find today? They, I read it and I'm like, okay, this is another one. This is what I have to look into. Yeah, yeah. Especially when they've been reported, you know, there was a story I wrote, and I think you read it a number of years ago, about a girl that was murdered by her mother up in Vancouver, Washington. And the way it had been reported, and the mother also committed suicide at the same time, and the way it had been reported in Oregonian was sort of this hearts and flowers story, like, oh, poor mother, she had fibromyalgia and just couldn't cope. But I'm like, wait, what? What? That wasn't the story. At all. The story was that, you know, she had Munchausen by proxy syndrome and had been basically torturing this child for years while looking like a very caring and doting mother. I think it's important that that story comes out rather than making her some sort of hero. Yeah. Don't you? Yeah, I do. I do think so. You know, I I think that we're telling stories about mothers, um, you know, in the last decade to two decades that present mothers as more complete and multifaceted human beings. Um, and we're hearing a lot of, you know, we're, we're hearing a lot more about women who suffer things like postpartum psychosis and kill their children or mm-hmm. extreme mm-hmm. postpartum depression, you know, those kinds of things. And I think that we're coming to grips with the idea that women are complicated, you know, human beings and we're all different and we all have different things that we're tackling. I think that most mothers can recall events where we're not our best selves as parents and we can equate it to our own mental health. And, you know, I'm thinking about so many toddler to teen events that would make any parent want to smack their kid. And then you add an unstable foundation to it. You know, right. Most of us don't, most of us don't smack our kids. Um, and killing our kids is unthinkable. So what did you learn about Amanda that enabled her to do it? Well, it's interesting that you're talking about like postpartum depression, which of course is a real thing. Um, I think that we, we see mothers as caretakers of children, which we are. Mm-hmm. We are also women. We also have agency, right? Someone said to me, well, is it the case that every woman, every mother that kills her child, you know, is mentally ill. And I said, well, if you're going to make that supposition, then I think you're going to have to say everyone who commits every crime is mentally ill. And there are people that will do that. And, and that's, you know, that's their belief system. I think women also have agency. And um, in Amanda's case, she did have issues. She suffered from depression. But Amanda also had sort of systematically been robbed of and was in collusion with her own robbing up her identity as someone who was a beautiful woman, who was a successful mother and wife, who had a home, who had a husband who loved her. All of these things over the years were quite 
deliberately take it away from her. Um, and she was in collusion with this, and she had her own issues, and she was drinking too much, and she was narcissistic. But at the end of the day, Amanda had nothing left. She had, had no place to live. She had lost custody of her children. She had not worked in many years. She was no longer, she had no husband. And um, she had nothing left to fight, might not be the right word, but she had nothing left except these children. And she made a decision that that was what she had left to fight with, you know, in order to make a statement, make a spectacle, to hurt her husband, to, to, because she was no longer in her right mind and she chose it. And I think that we can say that she obviously, clearly, was not in her right mind or in her best mind, but I also think she made a decision. And I think we rob women of agency when we just say, well, you know, clearly she's just crazy. You know, women make bad decisions, and, you know, she made one. So I, I do want to, I want to allow her to take some responsibility for her actions. Um, that might not be popular, but I, I do think that she does and should. So one review that um, I saw of the book mentioned toxic masculinity as a player in Amanda's decision. And I'm wondering, you know, what is her husband's role here? What is the father's role here? It's so funny because, you know, toxic masculinity, I think in the past year has become a, a, a term. I'd never heard it. And I hadn't either. A year ago, I hadn't either. Right. It's, it's, you know, part of the zeitgeist. And someone did, uh, Robert Kolker, a wonderful writer who wrote Lost Girls, um, loved my book and he used that phrase. Uh, her husband had, um, uh, he had pathologies that included um, just unbelievable lying and um, chronic or reflexive lying and very charming and um, had people sort of tricked about who he was. Um, and uh, in, he, he made a lot of things seem like Amanda's fault and a lot of things were Amanda's fault. But he definitely put her in a position where she became, when someone in the book said, Jason was Amanda's God. When it came to Jason, she was an easy person to mess with. And she couldn't see beyond her own obsession with her husband. Um, And it became very ugly and to the detriment of the children for many years. Uh, He was a manipulative guy. And, you know, we really don't have the time to go into all of the things that were happening, but we can say there was lying and there was abuse, emotional abuse, and there was drug use. And um, I, she became winnowed away while still being an angry person and wanting to have her way. And the children suffered. That's what happens. Boy, didn't they? Boy, didn't they? Yeah. They did. I mean, and they suffered for years, including her older boy, Gavin, who's just such a remarkable young man um, who I did get to talk to and see over the years and is still a remarkable young man. You know, he he really lived this with Amanda and Jason. Jason's not his father. Mm-hmm. Um, and he came out OK, mm-hmm. uh, which is amazing. Um, yeah. Kids are so resilient. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. 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 And he had, you know, he had to take care of the little ones, which were Trinity and Elgin, to a great extent, because his, his stepfather and his mother were behaving so badly and ignoring them. And, you know, that is something between his own sort of 
DNA, personality, makeup. His father was a, you know, worked on a nuclear submarine, was a super reliable guy, and just, you know, really lovely, reliable human. He got that from his biological father. And then being put in a position where you're taking care of like a one in a four-year-old, he just became a responsible human, mm-hmm. um, which is just wonderful for him. Mm. And he's in a great place now, but it took it took time. Yeah. So most of. <clears throat> My writing time, you know, I spend writing about women's rights and women's economic empowerment and educational empowerment and yeah. gender inequities in developing countries. And and I write a lot about, you know, kind of the miraculous transformations that happen in not only individual women's lives, but their families, their entire communities when, you know, these inequities and, and human right issues are addressed and the barriers are moved. And many of these same issues and rights and, you know, they're all present in the lives of women like Amanda, who, you know, right here in the U.S., they're present in the lives of women all over the place. And I'm wondering what, if you saw that as a factor in her decision. Well, I think one of the factors in in Amanda's life that seemed to me very problematic was um, she was she was raised very Christian, which is fine. Many, many people are. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the church that her family had gone to and that she still sought some like marriage counseling from was a was a particular non-denominational Christian church where you know the husband's supposed to be in charge the husband's supposed to make the decisions you're supposed to be an obedient wife now Amanda was not an obedient wife however she was continually counseled to let her husband make certain decisions and he was making terrible decisions you know whether it was spending all the money or doing drugs or not being around or stealing all the family's possessions and pawning them. So how, how do you operate in that system where you're being told go home and obey your husband, but your husband is definitely not <laughs> making good decisions. Um, that I think was a bit of a factor. I don't think it was a factor with her dri- I had with her driving the kids to the bridge, but it was a factor in her breaking down. Yeah. And I think, there are certain systems that people want to work within because it's supposed to be best for the family unit. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it just adds another layer of, of unmanageability to her life. Yeah. Um, and, you know, she also, you know, she made certain decisions too. She hadn't worked in a long time. Um, so she didn't have a financial, she, she couldn't get by on her own. Yeah. Um, so yeah, she, she didn't have a lot to work with yeah. at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's shift gears a little bit, um, and I sure. just I just want to talk a little bit more about your writing career and mm-hmm. um, when it started and how. Sure. So I was living in Hollywood with my daughter's dad, and I got pregnant by choice in 1989. I was 27 years old, and I had been working, I kind of had wanted to be a movie star, Jeannie. That's why I was in Hollywood. I think yeah. that was my destiny. And of course, like most people that think that's their destiny, of course, it wasn't my destiny. <laughs> and thank God for that. Um, I started reading scripts for a living for ICM, big um, uh, creative agency, talent agency. And I was able to do like two a day. I'd read a script. I'd write coverage, which is not even realizing at that point was great training for a writer because you're writing like six to eight pages every day of stuff you're analyzing. I was able to support my daughter. Um, I left the, my, my relationship with, with um, her dad. I was on my own and I started to do journalism. I, I got a little story and then I got a bigger story. I went my first feature. I drove cross country to interview 
John Wayne Gacy, the serial killer, before he, I mean, talk about, you know, trial by fire. Um, And I just loved it. I was, I, the minute I became a journalist, I was like, oh, this is it. I'm never doing anything else. And I have it, except for helping my husband open his coffee shop. Um, uh, I was lucky because it was the 90s where there was a lot of money in journalism. I worked for everybody in LA and I worked for the New York Times and I had no problem getting work. And I made a career and I was lucky enough to write for the LA Weekly for 20 years where they just gave you, oh, so much room to roam. Like, I'd be like, yeah, man, there's this cool old man bar in an SRO hotel in downtown LA. My eighth month, like, yeah, give me 6,000 words on that. Yeah. So I just would get to sit there and watch human beings, which is, this is like my great privilege and joy to just like sit and watch people and talk to them and have, have them tell me their stories. I mean, I truly, people say this and they're like, oh yeah, I really do think I have the best job in the world. Like, yeah. no doubt. Yeah. Um, and, and it started with a baby. Do it. it started with a baby. It started because it started absolutely because I had, I had a child. Yeah. And I had to support this child. Yeah. I became a grown up when yep. I had a baby. You know, when do you become a grown up? 15, 18, 35. I became a grown up when I gave birth to my daughter. Yeah. And I knew I had to stop doing, you know, the idiotic things we do as young people. Let's not go into the details. Um, and I had to also be responsible. And I, I found it very easy to be responsible. I found it very easy to be a mother. I did a podcast with someone who was saying like, oh, isn't it just the worst thing in the world to be a parent? I was like, oh, my oh. God. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. I mean, yeah. without a doubt, she is the reason why I have a career. She was the reason why I want to be around and be around for the next day and see what's happening. I mean, <clears throat> I, I, I love everything about being mother. Everything. Yeah. Um, I can't tell you. Believe me. He was interviewing me. He's like, no. I was like, yes, yes. Trust me. I yeah. do. It's the good stuff. Yeah. It's the good stuff for a lot it's of us. Best. Yeah. I can't tell yeah. you how many people I talk to for this podcast who tell me that their business, their career, their, you know, their creativity, it all started with, um, they had the baby and then they had to make a living. I love that. Yeah. And it, I love that. It's consistent um, for women. It is, you know, I don't talk to as many men about parenting. I do some, but their stories don't necessarily start with, and I had the baby and I had to make a no, living. Absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. we have a little <laughs> bit, we have so much creative juice that goes into producing this child. And then, we have some left over to produce the life that we have to construct in American society to be able to raise them. And thank God for it. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, we've done. And I'll tell you something a little bit interesting. Well, we think it's interesting. So my daughter is, um, she's a production designer for like film and video and editorial. And she's a photographer, a very good narrative photographer, sort of think like Nan golden style stuff. She's, she's very good. And we realized a couple of years ago that she does with her photography kind of exactly what I do with my writing. Yeah. She's going into people's lives. And that was really interesting to us. Like, wow, that you could, it's our joy to do this and mm-hmm. we'll actually do some projects together. We have, and mm-hmm. we have other ones that we will do. And I love that. I just love like, you know, from, I had to make a living and I turned out to be able to do it in something that so fascinates me. And it sort of jumped mm-hmm. And she does it in a different way. That's yeah. just super cool. Yeah, it is. I know. It's really cool. Um, you know, we we had another famous uh, 
well, a child abduction, maybe a murder. We all assume the Kyron Horman case that happened here in Portland like yes. 10 years ago, where this little boy, yes. for listeners who aren't familiar, was dropped off supposedly at his, like his grade school um, and by his stepmother and never showed up. No, you know, nobody ever saw him again. We still don't right. know whatever happened to the poor kid. And no. it kind of makes Portland out to be this really desperate place, you know, where moms are tossing kids off bridges and stuff like that. But it's also this place where, as you mentioned earlier, it gave us a platform where our kids could grow. And, you know, my kids and your daughter are these wildly creative human beings. And, you know, we lived in a city that enabled them to become professionals as creatives. And that's, that's a gift. That's a gift. That's yeah. Yeah. And then they, they take it to it, you know, like what my daughter does, she yeah. couldn't do in Portland. There just isn't the sort of editorial um, no. world there. So she does it in New York, but great. Right. Yeah. Her foundation. Right. I don't think that she would have had the opportunity in LA because too many things would have been sort of like handed to them or the parents would have, you know, you know she was going to school with like Hugh Hefner's kid and, you know, the Moore's kid and like, her friend calls and says, I'm flying Harrison Ford's plane. It's like, that is, I, I mean, it was funny, but not good for these kids to, yeah. to yeah. do what they can do. So, yeah. 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 So Kyron Horman was interesting. So, of course, it was just a devastating case and it got, oh my goodness, it got really, really a lot of press. Yeah. Um, and I had someone email me. I had a blog at the time and I was writing about Amanda and someone said, Oh, are you so sorry? You're actually not writing about the current Foreman case instead. And I was like, uh, no, you know, as though, you know, we want to write about celebrated terrors. Right. I mean, I'm sure some journalists do want to do that, but that's not why I'm here Yeah. at all. Yeah. No. Yeah. You told me once that you write about failure. Do you still think that that's what you yeah. write about? Um, you know, that's, it, that's a very interesting question. A, a little less, the reason I wrote about failure a lot is because I was in LA yeah. and failure is the sort of lifeblood of Los Angeles. Everybody comes with these hyperbolic dreams that don't come true, right? I'm going to be the next, you know, Harrison Ford. And no, you're like working in a dry cleaners 20 years later, but it could still happen. I mean, that's the dude I want to interview. Yeah. I mean, hello, yeah. let's talk about your life. Portland people come with their sort of achievable dreams, right? So I've been in Portland for a while. Um, so I haven't been covering failure as much, but I did just put together a manuscript of Los Angeles stories that is just like deliciously dipped in failure. Um, uh, and I think I, I could write about that again if I were in, a, in an environment where it was so pervasive. Right now, I'm just continually looking for stories that have been told one way and really don't seem that way at all to me. Like, yeah. mm, I don't think so. I think there's something else here. And then I become kind of obsessed and have to figure out what that something else is. Yeah, you do. It's always fascinating. It's <laughs> always fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've, we've been talking for a good while here, and I've got a couple more questions okay. that I want to ask you. But sure. before we switch gears to our final questions, what else do you want listeners to know about the book, where they can find it, where you're going to be reading, that kind of thing. Sure. So if they go to my website, which is Nancy Rom, N-A-N-C-Y-R-O-M-M.com, and scroll down a little, there is a, there's like an event card that I made, and they can see where I'm reading. I'm reading uh, in New York tomorrow night, in D.C. on Thursday, 
um, what, what, what day is today? This will air after that. And then I'm in Philadelphia on July 19th. And then I'm in Martha's Vineyard. And then I'm in LA and Seattle. Anyway, if you want to come see me, I'd love to see you. Please introduce yourself. They can find the book at Amazon.com, at Powell's in Portland. You know, many local bookstores will carry it. Some won't, I'm sure. A lot of books in the world to carry. Um, what do I want them to know? It's not a sensational book. If you think like, oh God, you know, there are a lot of better neighborhoods to hang out in than, you know, a mother who kills her children. And I absolutely agree. But I think when we see these stories and say, I'll never understand how this happens, I think that you can. Now, okay, you may not want to. And I, and I get that. Um, especially people are like, why do I want to pay any attention to Amanda? And I'm like, well, think of it that it's not paying attention to Amanda or even to her children for yourself. You might, you might understand, understand something that you didn't before, and you might look at a tragic situation and say, okay, um, I can actually understand this now, as opposed to just being one of those people that closes the door and say evil, horrible, hunger from the Selwood Bridge, because I don't really think that helps. Yeah. I don't think it helps the, yeah. the judicial system, and I don't think it helps us to just knee-jerk hate. I, I think either. we're better off understanding. I do, yeah. too. So I think, and, you know, I, I mean, I did the best job I could on the book. I, I've been told it's a it's a good read, and um, I would of course love people to read it. I mean, of course. Yeah, yeah, it's going to generate a lot of conversation. So, a couple more questions. How sure. do you how would you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. Nobody ever told me that I should commit, and that when you do commit, the most amazing things will happen. I think I I skidded around for a long time not committing but as soon as you do commit to whatever it is your child your career things really really happen but they're not going to happen if you don't commit yeah. i wish someone had told me that sooner that's, that's different i've never heard that before i really like it you and i could talk a long <laughs> time about the difference between intention and commitment yeah yeah so then my last question for you is this where are you in your life as a mom well, I have a daughter who's 28, and I think she's kind of getting ready to have a baby herself. I mean, not today, but she and her guy, who's he's totally ready for it, are getting closer. And I'm sort of semi-migrating back to New York. My, my dream is to sort of buy a little place here so I can be close to her and be close to her child, you know, and just to keep this going. I don't want to be a mom that lives across the country from my child and, like, sees her twice a year. That is right. not going to happen. And I told my husband, you know, we live in Portland and have a home. He's got a business there. I said, I want to do this. He's like, work it out, babe. Let's do it. So that's where I'm at. Just Great. continue seeing her more. Yeah. That's really important to me. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, Nancy, it's been really fun to catch up and to talk about the book. I'm really excited about it. Yeah. Jeannie, I'm so glad that you asked me to do this. It's really nice. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I'll see you back in Portland. We'll talk again. Yeah. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Take care. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Mama said. Mama said. Mama said Our guest today was Nancy Rommelman, and her book is called To the Bridge. You can learn more about Nancy at nancyrommelman.com. Her name's hard to spell, too. So here goes. R-O-M-M-E-L-M-A-N-N. That's two M's and two N's. You can learn more about me at genefaulkner.com. You can pick up the book, Common Sense Pregnancy, on Amazon, at Target, your local bookstore, wherever you get your books. 
or over on my website at genefaulkner.com. Email me, gene at genefaulkner. Tweet me, at genefaulkner. Find Common Sense Pregnancy over on Instagram and let me know what's on your mind. Thanks, as always, for posting a nice rating and review on Apple Media or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Common Sense Pregnancy Parenting and Politics is part of the Parents on Demand Network. And that's it for this week, y'all. Common Sense Pregnancy is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. We'll talk again soon. Bye-bye.